You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. This morning, we're starting a new series which we've titled Lamb of God, What Jesus Accomplished at the Cross. And in a way, this this series will be like a, a pilgrimage of sorts as we make our way toward our Good Friday service, which is on March 30th. So pull out your calendars right now on your phones and type in Good Friday service on March 30th. Please don't miss it. Uh, it's going to be good and, um, and a powerful service like it, like it was last year for those who were there. It's a good time of reflection and repentance and, and just, just coming to the cross, which is what this series is about. So it's going to culminate on that day. And then, of course, um, we'll end this series on our Easter Sunday service where we'll celebrate what was accomplished and completed in his resurrection. So it's going, to be, it's going to be good. But until then, the main point of this series is to set our gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ, upon its glory, to kneel at the foot of it, and to hopefully bring us to a place where we, we can't help but glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we, as we learn, as we receive, as we remember what he's done for us, what he accomplished for us. Uh, and I'm really excited about it, but to be honest... I'm also a bit nervous about it as well. Uh, I'm excited because what happened at the cross is such an integral, significant, and foundational moment uh, for not only who we are as the church, as the body of Christ, and as followers of Christ, but but for the world. It's a world-changing moment, a world-changing event. So it's going to be awesome to to go through it and exciting to go through it and ponder it and discuss it and learn about it for the next month. But that's why I'm also a little bit nervous about it. Uh, Because again, it's such an integral, significant, and foundational part of who we are. So I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to. I don't want to miss anything. Uh, I don't want to fall short. But I'm human, so I probably will fall short. Uh, So on that note, I want to encourage you all to not just settle for these Sunday morning sermons especially when we're talking about this topic. Don't just settle for these Sunday morning sermons. For example, in the book of Acts, there's a group of Jews mentioned there called the Berians. And as the Apostle Paul preaches, preaches to them the gospel, this good news of the cross, of Christ crucified, this is how they respond to that message. Acts 17.11 says, The Berian Jews were more honorable than those in Thessalonica. This was evident in the great eagerness with which they accepted the word and then examined the scriptures each day to see whether Paul and Silas' teaching was true. So as we go through the series this month, I want to encourage you each Sunday and all the days in between to be like the Berians. To come to church ready and eager to receive with humble and expectant hearts, even though it might be a message you've heard hundreds of times before, the message of the cross, come with humble and expectant hearts. But I also want to encourage you to dig into the Bible. And not just into theology books or or books about the Bible. Dig into the Bible, into the Old and New Testament, to discover for yourself the truth of what we're going through in this series. In other words, don't just take my word for it. But make it your own. Examine the scriptures. Taste and see for yourself what Christ has done. Because there's so much. So much was accomplished at the cross. More than I could talk about in in the 30 minutes I have this morning. 
By 30 minutes, I mean 35. And by 35, I mean 40. We'll see what happens. Um, but regardless, I'm only going to be barely able to scratch the surface of this miraculous and world-changing event today. And, and even though I'm going to be expanding on it as we go through the month and building on it, and Blair's going to be helping, helping me out with that as well, there's so much. <laughs> I won't be able to get through it all. For example, there, there are books upon books written about this subject. Sick and small, I have a book that says 50 reasons Jesus came to die. I can't talk about 50 reasons in, in five sermons, right? In other words, this is a vast and huge topic. So again, for your own soul, for your own sake, dig into the Word. We all have Bibles. We all have Bible apps. Dig into the Word and discover the depth and the beauty of the cross of Christ. And speaking of which, speaking of the cross, I think most of us, when, when we think about what Jesus accomplished at the cross... The thing that comes to mind first is, is, of course, that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? That's, that's the thing that comes first and foremost to our minds. And that's absolutely true. That's the heart of the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for us. Jesus saves us. And that's actually one of the main themes of this morning's sermon that I'm, that I'm going to get to in a bit. But when we really dig into the Word and ponder it and study it and pray about it, we find that there's, there's so much more that God was doing at the cross. It's such a significant moment, in fact, that the Apostle Paul declares in Galatians 6.14, he says this, But as for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through him, and I have been crucified to the world. That's how significant and important the cross of Christ is to Paul. But I think that because, you know, we've become so familiar with the cross, I don't think we often realize that that from an outsider's perspective, to the people he's speaking to even, this this is a peculiar statement that he's making here. And interpreted out of context, maybe even a disgusting one. Definitely from a 21st century perspective, maybe even a primitive sounding one. Think about it. The only thing that Paul feels is worth truly boasting about or bragging about is the cross on which an innocent yet legally condemned man was nailed to until he died. And not only does he boast about this cross, he actually says that nothing in the world matters to him anymore except for the cross. Nothing that the world can offer him is worth anything compared to the cross. The the world's treasures was crucified with Christ on the cross, he says. And it's, it's an odd statement. If we actually think about it, it's an odd statement, even more so when you consider the brutal and humiliating circumstances of a crucifixion. The late theologian John Scott, he writes about crucifixion and says, it is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. It was so horrendous, in fact, that Romans rarely ever crucified their own people, their own citizens. It was used mostly on foreigners or slaves. And even then, it was usually just for the worst and lowest forms of criminals who in those days were like murderers or armed thieves or enemies. In fact, Cicero, he's a Roman politician around 60 B.C., 
called it a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Then he goes on later to say, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. But nevertheless, these horrible deeds were, were practiced by Romans throughout their empire and was often done in public areas, on hills or along highways and roads, because they not only served as torturous punishment for those sentenced to hang, but also served as a warning for everyone else to behave. But it wasn't just horrendous from the Roman perspective. According to the Jews as well, to be hung on a tree was to be cursed. As it says in Deuteronomy 21.33, it says, Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So the cross is brutal, it's horrendous, it's grueling torture, it's humiliating, it's a curse, it's only reserved for the worst of the worst. It's no surprise then that some would later call this message of the cross foolishness and crazy and even offensive. And yet, like the other apostles as well, this is all that Paul desires to boast in, this foolishness. In fact, wherever he went, his chief concern was proclaiming Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, for example, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And still, even though he was mocked, even though people saw it as foolishness, it didn't slow him down, He's aware of the accusations, 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, So when we preach that Christ was crucified, this is what happens. The Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So we have to ask, what's there, what's there to boast about in this, this bloody crucifixion? It seems foolishness, and it's offensive. Also, what's so special about a cross when... When thousands of people died on crosses before Jesus did, and many more after. People were being crucified and left to rot long before the Romans even adopted the practice. Even, even the cross itself as a religious symbol in, in many, was used in, in many flags, cultures, cults, religions and traditions, and carried various meanings long before Jesus died on one. So why then do we, as Christians, wear this symbol of ancient torture and punishment around our necks? Why do we celebrate it? Why, we, were, we were singing about it earlier. Why do, we, why do we hang it on our wall? Why do we put it on top of our churches and on our signs? We wouldn't ha- hang or sing about other means of execution or torture. That, w- that would be inappropriate. Right? We don't have pictures of electric chairs and, and nooses and, and giant executioners' axes hanging in our homes. I'd hope anyways. But yet we've got the cross everywhere. It's central to all we do. It's central to who we are as Christians. Why? Why does the Apostle Paul, a Jewish scholar and believer who knows that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed... Why does he center his very life and purpose and bragging rights solely on this particular cross on which Jesus died? Why do we come to church every Sunday to kneel at the cross and remember Jesus' death? Why did Jesus himself tell us to do that? 
Why? Because it was at the cross that God chose to declare his saving love to the world. It was upon the cross that Jesus declared, it is finished. Because while the cross looks like foolishness to some, the cross of Jesus Christ is actually the power of God to save 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why we boast in it. That's why we sing about it. That's why we celebrate it. That's why we repent and, and, and come before the cross, because it's the power of God. And let me be clear, that the cross itself, two cross beams of wood shoved in a hole, that, that doesn't hold any power in and of itself. But the word of the cross, the message of the cross, what took place at the cross, that's the power of God for salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. And at its foundation, that Jesus died for our sin. So Paul boasts in the cross of Jesus Christ because of what took place and because of who took our place upon it. It's our very hope. It's the foundation of our faith. It's our righteousness It's our only means of salvation. Now, like I said earlier, more than just salvation and forgiveness of sin was accomplished at the cross, but for the last portion of my message this morning, I'm going to focus in on that one theme, and then over the next five weeks, we're going to expand on it. We're going to open it up even more. But today, like Paul, I just want to focus and boast in the cross of Jesus Christ simply because upon it, Jesus, by his grace, again, won the forgiveness of our sin. He died for our sin, and I want to talk about how and why he did that. But first of all, before we do, let's talk about sin. Does that sound fun? Talking about sin? For real, though, we we can't understand the weight of what Jesus accomplished if we don't, first of all, understand the weight of our sin. So when you hear the word sin, how does it make you feel? Does it make you want to dance like I did? I know you wanted to see that again. Um, What do you think it means? When you hear the word sin, what do you think it means? Most people would say that it means being bad. Or that it means breaking the Ten Commandments or something like that. That's how we often explain sin to, to our kids, especially, right? When you do something that's not right, we're sinning against God. And that's not completely wrong. It's just that that definition is oversimplified. And the problem with that definition or way of thinking that sin is just being bad is that at times it can be problematic. For example, if sin is only being bad, then most people in our society who live normal law-abiding lives and occasionally help the poor and they never cheat on their taxes and they're nice to everybody then they won't think or ever think that they'll need to be saved from their sin. Because under that definition, they're not sinners. They're not being bad. I'm not a bad person, right? You hear that all the time. I'm a good person. Of course, the problem there as well is is the fact that everyone's sense of right and wrong, everyone's sense of good and bad is varying and different. So it's, it's an oversimplified definition. With all that being said, then sin, while it often manifests in us thinking or doing bad or selfish things, is not just about being bad. 
It goes deeper than that. It goes way deeper than that. Because sin isn't just about what we do or think. It's about who we are in relation to a holy God. It's about who we are in relation to a holy God. Ever since the fall of man, that relationship has been broken. That relationship has been fallen. We've been in rebellion against God and his image, his purpose for us, his desire for us, his design for us. So in comparison to God's holiness in our sin, we, we, we don't even come close. And again, we were meant to be. But sin has corrupted that. In fact, one of the reasons the moral law of God was given to his people in the Old Testament was to show them this fact. Romans 3.20 says, I don't, know if, I don't know if I gave you this verse or not. Did I? Romans 3.20? Oh, I did. I thought I forgot that one. Sweet. Romans 3.20 says, It follows that no human being will be treated as righteous in his presence by doing what the law says. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. For example, the, the Pharisees, we all hear about the Pharisees all the time, they were a group of religious people, religious leaders of the, of, of the Jews, who thought they could earn God's blessing and righteousness by following the law. And they thought they were righteous because they did follow the law, but they missed the point, right? Perfectly following the law is impossible for sinful man. That's what the law is there to show, that we can't measure up to God. We can't do it, which is why the law also provided instructions and ways of obtaining yearly and monthly and, 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 and daily forgiveness of sins. Because it assumes we'll fail. Because no one can measure up to God on their own merit. Only Jesus, the Son of God, lived out the law perfectly in perfect and humble obedience to the Father. No one else has or can or will. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And that's really what sin is, right? It's to fall short of the measure of God. It's to miss the mark or standard of who God created us to be because we've turned from God's purpose, we've turned from God's standards to pursue our own. As John Stott says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself or herself for God. So from Adam and Eve all the way to today, we see a similar pattern. We see that the root of sin is unbelief. We see that the root of sin is a prideful desire to place ourselves on the throne of God, to take charge of our own lives, right? It's to reject God's way for our own. And every time that we sin, that's what we do. We say, no, thank you, God. I'm doing my own way. The bottom line here is that sin is a condition of the heart and soul. That, yes, often plays out in causing us to do sinful things, which we call sinning. But again, it's not a problem with what we do. Jesus doesn't want to just treat the symptoms, right? It's what, what we do is symptomatic of the deeper issue, our sinful nature, that we can't measure up to God, that we've turned from him and we've grieved him and we've rebelled against him. Therefore, it's not something we can fix on our own or just pay off. It's not something we can just change in ourselves or, or work off by doing lots of good deeds or good works. In fact, one of the reasons Paul boasts in the cross is because without it, he'd still be in that sinful condition. 
Without Jesus' grace upon him, he'd still be stuck in that state. He calls himself the, the worst of sinners at one point. He's saying, I'm the worst of sinners. I, I deserve the, the worst judgment possible. But because of Jesus' grace, I'm not wandering in the darkness anymore. I'm not following the course of the world, this world anymore. And that's why that's the Bible often refers to our sinful nature as being slaves to sin. Because we're owned by it, we're in debt to it, we're led by it, and we're subject to the effects of it. Therefore, it's something we need to be rescued from and saved from. Something outside of ourselves has to do that for us. And why do we need to be rescued from it? What's, what's the big deal? Because the result of our sin, of our rebellion against God, is, is less than favorable. I'll give four, four of those, those reasons right now. First of all, sin separates us from knowing God. Isaiah 59, 1-2 says, Look, the Lord does not lack the power to save, nor are his ears too dull to hear, but your misdeeds have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you weren't heard. And I'm going to be talking more about this next week and how the cross overcomes that problem of separation with God, which I'm excited about. But I'll leave it at that. Secondly, sin deceives us and blinds us to the truth. Second Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are on the road to destruction. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't have faith so they couldn't see the light of the gospel that reveals Christ's glory. Christ is the image of God. So it deceives us and blinds us to the truth. Third, sin leads to death. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And number four, sin leads to condemnation and God's judgment. And I'm going to be talking more about that subject next week as well. So stay tuned. It's going to be good and how the cross overcomes that as well. But bottom line, we need, we needed and we need to be rescued from our sin. We need a Savior to not only remove it, but to make us right with God. To change us from within. And of course, Jesus accomplished this at the cross. When Jesus says, it is finished, and then gave up his life, those words marked the very moment that he won victory and redemption over our sin and its consequences. That simple statement underlines and italicizes the grace and mercy and love of God for us. That he would rescue us and redeem us by giving up his own glory, by giving up his own life, even while we sinned against him. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right moment Christ died for ungodly people. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare die for a good person. But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we boast in the cross because through it, God's love for us was on full display and upon it, Jesus saved us from our sin. As John the Baptist declared upon seeing him for the first time, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.
And that expression, that expression or phrase, Lamb of God, is incredibly important and symbolic. He says that intentionally because it shows us why and how Jesus accomplished victory over our sin through dying on the cross. It's also the reason we titled our sermon series this. Because what it means is that Jesus was and is the perfect and ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And let me explain. A couple thousand years earlier, if we go back in time, during the first Passover event in Egypt, you know when Moses is trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, at one point God commanded the Hebrew nation to sacrifice a lamb and then spread its blood over their doorways. It's kind of gross, but spread the blood over the doorways in order to cover and protect them from the judgment of God as the angel of the Lord, as the angel of the Lord passed over Egypt. So in that circumstance, the blood of the lamb covered their sin. It protected them from the judgment of God. The lamb's death was given in place of their own. And side note, this action of uh, substituting of substituting a sacrifice in their place is often called substitutionary atonement. Remember that. <laughs> substitutionary atonement. And then also from then on, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that was that was given to them through Moses, right? Was it was required that a lamb be sacrificed every day in the morning and in the evening in order to pay the debt of sin for the people for that day. So, as John the Baptist would have proclaimed this statement, Behold the Lamb of God, they would have known what he meant. They would have been familiar with the sacrificial system. They they would have been familiar with the Passover feast that they have every year to celebrate that first Passover They also would have been familiar with the many prophecies and scriptures of one who would come like a lamb led to the slaughter. In other words, John the Baptist's message here was that it's not just any lamb, though, that's been given to temporarily cover over the sins of the day. It's the perfect, unblemished, promised lamb from God that's come to take away the sins of the whole world once and for all, to to completely fulfill the law and the prophets. Which is why the cross of Jesus is the only thing worth boasting in. Not our good works, not riches, not our religious practices, not not any other philosophies or, or faiths. Nothing else could accomplish what Jesus did at the cross. Fully God in his perfection. He lived a life of obedience we couldn't live. Yet fully man. So that he could take the place of humanity's burden of sin upon himself as our atoning sacrifice. And the good news is that he did. The good news is that he did. He willingly set aside his glory and divine nature and exchanged his life for ours. Let me read a couple passages about this. First Peter 1, 18-19 says, Live in this way, knowing that you were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. None of that. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. 
In Romans 3, 23, 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I read that verse earlier. This is how it ends. But are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that word propitiation that's in that passage, that means to appease. So again, the sacrificial lamb was given in our place to appease the wages and punishment of our sin so that God could be just and the justifier. Jesus, the Lamb of God, satisfied, satisfied our debt as sinners by paying the price of sin for us, by taking on our sin and our place in death so that we can take his place in life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So yes, we boast in the cross because our old self, our sinful nature, was crucified with Him upon it. We boast in the cross because Jesus' blood that was shed not only forgives and covers our sin and shame, but removes it, erases it, frees us from it, forgets it. We boast in the cross because by his wounds we are healed. We're born again, given newness of life. Our heart of stone is turned into a heart of flesh. We boast in the cross because upon it, Jesus defeated death. Our death, the curse of the law, the wages of our sin. He defeated it. Isaiah 53, 4-7 sums this up nicely and powerfully. It says, It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God, and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole, and by his wounds we are healed. Like sheep, we had all wandered away, each going to its own way. But the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb being brought to slaughter. Like a ewe silent before her shears, he didn't open his mouth. We boast on the cross because upon it, the spotless lamb of God willingly took the place of sheep that had gone astray. Our punishment, he took our sin upon himself, our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, our sickness, and ultimately our death. We boast in the cross of Jesus Christ because it's our salvation, it's our forgiveness, it's our hope, it's our righteousness, it's our freedom. Because his death bought us life, abundant life, eternal life, and, and, and even more amazing is the fact that it's just freely given to us. It's just freely given to us. 
by his grace alone. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to purchase it. We don't have to pay it back because it's finished. It's finished. Which means that all who humbly repent from their sin and believe in his name are, are saved. We just have to receive it. Believe in faith. Pray and ask God. That's it. Because Jesus paid it all. That's huge. And when I say all, I'm, I, mean, I mean all of it. No matter how small or terrible your deeds or your crimes or your guilt or your shame or your pride or your sin, all who believe can receive this free gift of grace and forgiveness. That's good news. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast in themselves. In conclusion then, as we gaze upon the cross this morning, the cross in which Jesus died, let it remind us that though our sin debt was great, the love and grace and sacrifice of the Lamb of God was and is greater still. So let us remember with praise and thanksgiving that though he didn't have to, he chose to take our place. He willingly died for us. He chose to bear the weight of our guilt and shame. He chose to atone for our sin and he accomplished it at the cross. He won. Death was defeated. Sin was defeated. And that's love. That's grace. That's true life poured out for us freely. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm sure a lot of you have heard this message a zillion times before, but for me, this message of the cross, this good news of the gospel of Jesus, it never gets old. I had a great time this week studying this and preparing this message because every time that I, that I, that I dug into it, it just made me want to pour out my heart to the Lord in thanksgiving. As Paul proclaims, it's the only thing worth boasting in because it's everything. So this morning, as, 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 again, as we gaze upon the cross of Christ, while the world might behold it as folly or, or offensive or, or stupid, we know that we actually behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us so much that even though we've all sinned against you, Lord, that we all fall short of your glory, or that even while we were still yet sinners, you sent your one and only begotten Son to take our place, to live the life we couldn't live, And exchange that at the cross. Jesus, I thank you that you willingly took the burden of our sin and the consequences of our sin upon yourself at the cross. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be set free. So that our eyes could be opened to the glory of your grace and your truth and your love. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that the, 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 the power and, and the, the wonder of the cross, Lord, isn't lost on anyone in this room, Lord. But that you would, just, you, you would use this message to draw us deeper into thanksgiving for what you've done, for what you've accomplished for us, Lord. Lord, there, there aren't words, there aren't enough words to thank you for what you've done for us, for saving us, for setting us free. Lord, I thank you for the cross, and I pray that we would remember to be like the Berrien Jews, Lord, to, to, to not just settle for, for the message this morning, Lord God, but to seek out this truth, to, to dig into the word that you've given to us, Lord, and to, to discover the depths and riches of the message of the word of the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.